the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by taking just a moment and giving us a high rating on your podcast provider. This podcast is supported by listeners. Please consider joining me at Substack, where you'll also have access to frequent posts on current and historical events. It's a delight to have Ashley Tellis in the house. Ashley Tellis is the Tata Chair for Strategic Affairs and a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He specializes in international security and U.S. foreign and defense policy with a special focus on Asia and the Indian subcontinent. Ashley Tellis brings a wide range of relevant experience. He has served at high levels in the State Department, where he was a senior advisor to the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. He's a commissioned Foreign Service officer earlier in his career, and he served in the White House on the National Security Council staff under President George W. Bush. Ashley Tellis, welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. It's a pleasure to be here with you, James. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, thank you. We're delighted you're here. And you have a brand new book out called Grasping Greatness, Making India a Leading Power. Perhaps we could start because that's such a big topic and you bring so much to it. Why did you write this book, edit this book, and what are the questions that you intend to address through it? Well, we ed- we pulled together actually a group of India's leading economists, uh, political scientists, uh, thinkers about uh, international affairs uh, and military officers uh, to reflect on the challenges that India faces as it seeks to become a great power on the world stage. We thought that the timing was actually quite opportune uh, because you know the ambition that India has had to become a great power is one that goes back to its independence in 1947. But there have been, unfortunately, many false starts uh, along the way. Uh, In the 1990s, for the first time, India made a conscious effort uh, to walk back uh, the legacy of socialism, which was the economic model that it adopted uh, soon after it became independent. And that provided hope that the Indian economy would once again grow at the levels that we thought, you know, it was capable of. There were two other changes that were quite significant and that occurred very quickly after those early reforms in 1991. Uh, The demise of the Soviet Union liberated India to develop a new relationship uh, with the United States. And that was very important uh, for both countries. And in the administration that I served in under President George W. Bush, uh, we finally eliminated the biggest obstacle uh, to building the U.S.-India partnership, which was India's anomalous status in the nuclear non-proliferation order, 
uh, for you know our listeners, it's worth reminding them that India developed nuclear weapons, but it never signed uh, the non-proliferation treaty. And so it was in a sort of odd category. It was a nuclear weapon state, but it was not treated as a legitimate nuclear weapon state. And that made it the target of US non-proliferation sanctions uh, for close to 40 years. And President uh, Bush basically made the decision to eliminate those sanctions once and for all uh, by developing you know, a new partnership with India uh, with respect to civilian nuclear cooperation. So when we look back at these three big events, uh, India's uh, change in economic strategy, uh, the fact that it now has a new partnership with Washington, and the fact that nuclear weapons no longer constitute a major disagreement uh, between uh, you know, our two countries, we thought that represented a huge opportunity, and we wanted to test whether India could make the best of it. And so the book really focuses on what India needs to do uh, to get into the great power leagues, uh, which has been a longstanding dream for Indian policymakers and also for large sections of the Indian public. Let me ask you a big question. Americans, particularly those who are middle-aged and younger, and I'm thinking here the median voter in this country is 42 to 44 years old, and most of their aware life has been in a very rare moment where the U.S. has been what some called a hyperpower or sort of a singular superpower. And in those circumstances, the American people, when we look at the world, see 200, nearly 200 countries. How should we see India in that world? Well, I think we, we should see India in a world where American power is increasingly challenged by the rise of China. Uh, for most of the post-war period, uh, we faced a similar competitor, and that was the Soviet Union. And because of a, the remarkable success of containment, which was essentially the policy that the United States followed from 1950 to 1991, uh, we were able to defeat the Soviet Union, thankfully without a major war. We are now confronted with the rise of a new great power, China. And it's a great power whose rise, in some ways, we encouraged uh, as an as a antidote uh, to the Soviet Union in the later years of the Cold War. And after 91, continued to support, essentially through uh, the economic partnership, the growing economic dependence. Uh, interdependence between the United States and the Chinese economies. Now, unfortunately for us, uh, China used the benefits of that integration uh, to reach a point where it has amassed very significant capabilities, including military capabilities, and it seeks to use those military capabilities to challenge the United States as the hegemonic power in the international system. It's really in that context that I think of India, because I see India as another rising Asian power, which is united by a common interest with Washington. And that common interest is to ensure uh, that China does not dominate either Asia or the globe. 
And this is an ambition uh, that India shares with other Asian powers like Japan and Australia, who happen to be treaty allies of the United States. So in that sense, India is in very good company. And the way I think of India is a country that rivals China, at least in its potentialities, if not in its actual power today, but could well become another China 20 to 30 years from now. And this is a country because it is a democracy, because it now has a new relationship with the United States, is a country with which we can partner with far more comfortably uh, than we could ever partner with the Chinese. And so I think of India as a de facto fellow traveler in this huge project uh, that the United States confronts today, which is a project that focuses on maintaining a stable balance of power in Asia, a balance of power that prevents China from essentially intimidating our friends and partners in that part of the world. And in the context of that objective, I think India can play a very useful role. And that's the way I see it. The extraordinary history of China and India includes centuries where those two nations were the world's largest economies and were together, I believe, and you could confirm or correct this, together they comprise more than half of the world's gross economic product. Do you see a reversion to that sort of historical mean, or how do you picture the long view of this? Well, what you said, James, is absolutely right, that if you look at the world, I would say from 1500, or at least at 1500, all the way up to about, say, 1750, uh, the Chinese economies and the Indian economies uh, were truly uh, gigantic relative to all the rest of the international system. Uh, between the two, if I remember my graduate economics uh, anymore, mm. uh, they dominated close to two-thirds of the world's economies. But then both countries missed the Industrial Revolution, both countries uh, were penetrated by either formal or informal colonialism. And both countries, in a sense, uh, lost that trajectory uh, and certainly that position uh, that they once had. Now, it's, it's hard to say whether we will get a clean reversion to the past. But what is quite obvious is that both China and India are destined to be very major economic powers. China already is. China has the world's second largest economy uh, today, uh, you know, in comparison to the United States. And it will be another decade or perhaps two at most uh, before India moves up from its current place as the fifth largest economy in the world to being the third largest economy in the world. So the only reason I am uncomfortable with the phrase, a reversion to the past, is that unlike in the past when China and India stood alone, in the future, even the large Chinese and Indian economies that we can anticipate will be surrounded by other large economies, like those of the United States, like those of Western Europe, 
uh, and like those of Japan. Uh, there will obviously be differences in size depending on the fortunes of each of these countries. But even a economically powerful China and an economically uh, powerful India uh, will not exist in isolation, as was the case uh, between 1500 and 1750. Rather, they will be uh, they will be uh, located in an environment where there are other big economies as well. So, if there is any forecast that one can sort of, you know. Articulate. I think that forecast suggests a slow diffusion of power in the international system, but I suspect that at least for the next two decades, the international system will still be relatively bipolar because China and the United States will have comparably large economies uh, with other smaller economies sort of persisting or existing on the periphery. So it's going to be a very interesting next 30 years uh, because, you know, America's singularity will certainly diminish. It will be matched in many ways by growing Chinese power. But there will be a huge gap between the U.S. and Chinese economies and then the economies of the rest. Now, I'm I'm including uh, if you if you think of the European Union as a unified entity, then of course it will be a tripolar world because you know the European Union will match the United States and China in terms of comparative economic strength. But if you do not think of it as a unified entity and you look at the nation states that compose the European Union, then it'll be the U.S. and China at the top, and many other you know strong economic powers following. Ashley, tell us, at the beginning of the 20th century, President Theodore Roosevelt and Secretary of State John Hay foresaw what they called a Pacific century. Yet to a great extent, we've lived through an Atlantic century marked by two world wars that had their origins in Europe. And at this moment, there are echoes of that in the Ukraine-Russian war. Are we now heading into the Pacific century? I think it will be a Pacific century, uh, no doubt, uh, simply because of the rise of China, the emergence of India, uh, the con continuing persistence of Japan as a great power, not to mention other major economies like those of South Korea, Taiwan, and the Southeast Asian states. So if you think of it in relative terms, uh, the center of gravity will suddenly move eastward and uh, the Indo-Pacific region uh, will become a very powerful motor uh, of the global economy. But it's important to keep in mind that this motor will not exist in isolation. Uh, the North American uh, landmass, as it were, dominated by the United States uh, with Canada and Mexico, and the West European landmass, which encompasses broadly uh, the European Union, will remain as very serious uh, concentrations of power in the global system. And so while attention will be, will be drawn to the Indo-Pacific, simply because we will have two major powers, China and India, with whom we have 
you know, differences of worldview, differences of culture, differences of history and civilization, uh, all the same, uh, the Indo-Pacific will still be located in a very crowded geopolitical environment. And so while the US should be focusing more on the Indo-Pacific region, in my view, it cannot do so to the neglect of its own hemisphere and of course developments in Europe. Let's talk for a moment about the Ukraine war. India navigated a very careful path during the Cold War on a non-aligned status in many cases. And today, India, because of its tremendously rising power, finds itself enmeshed also with Russian economic power. How do you see this sorting out? And how do you see the war as it's unfolding affecting India and its place in the world? So let me uh, that let me sort of take each question in turn. Let me start with India, and then I'll, I'll spend a few uh, minutes talking about the war itself. The Indian attitude to the war, I thought, was very interesting and is actually a useful object lesson for us. Because what it demonstrated was that even though India remains a close partner of the United States, and seeks to be an even closer partner. It is still zealous about defending its own independence and its freedom of action in the world. In other, in other words, while the Indians want to come closer to the United States, they do not want a relationship with the United States of the kind that is currently enjoyed, say, by Japan or by our European partners in NATO. India wants to remain both formally and materially independent uh, of the United States. And the way it reacted to the war in Ukraine, I think is emblematic of that desire to demonstrate independence. The Indians are not cheerleaders for the Russians. Uh, the Indians recognize that what Russia has done in Ukraine and is doing in Ukraine is actually quite egregious. Uh, it's aggression, pure and simple. But the Indians have a relationship with Russia which predates the end of the Cold War. And they are determined to preserve that relationship because their long-term vision of the global system is one of, uh, is one of multipolarity. And they see their own interests being served by the preservation of Russia as one of the poles. Now, the Russians may not cooperate and the Russians may do stupid things as they are, which will weaken them and which will destroy their capacity uh, to play the role of a pole. But the Indians want to the degree that they can control it, make sure that the Russians survive as a major power in the international system. And the Indians are afraid that a weakening Russia will ally itself more and more with China. And so the strategy they have adopted is to at least uh, pose as prima facie neutral in the conflict uh, that is currently occurring in Ukraine in order to be able to maintain some semblance of influence over Moscow's decision-making. Or to put it just very plainly, 
to prevent Moscow from finding itself in a position where its only friends in the world are Beijing and no one else. And that's the essence of the calculation that has driven New Delhi to adopt the policy that it did, which is privately chiding the Russians for the invasion of Ukraine, uh, besieging them uh, to walk back the invasion and sort of seek the path of peace, while publicly refusing to condemn the Russians in any transparent way, simply in order to maintain whatever vestiges it has of leverage with Moscow. So that's the essence of the Indian approach. And I think it's really driven by the conviction that for their interests, a world in which uh, Russia remains a major power is a better world uh, than one in which Russia disappears into sort of political insignificance. Let me address the question about Ukraine itself. I think at this stage, uh, from the viewpoint of American interests, we have no choice but uh, to help the Ukrainians defeat the Russian invasion. And there are two reasons in my judgment for why that should be the case. First, it is important to set a, a standard of what constitutes acceptable behavior in the international system. And the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think, was so egregious and so brazen that to allow it uh, to go unpunished, I think would set uh, an awful example, uh, especially to countries like China, which have watching very closely about how the world has responded uh, to this crisis. Because the Chinese are contemplating another potential crisis of their own, which is a, a crisis involving uh, Taiwan in the future. And they are looking carefully at how the United States is mobilizing its power and to what effect vis-a-vis -vis Russia. So there are clear demonstrative benefits uh, to defeating the Russian invasion in Ukraine uh, in order to send or to set an example uh, that might help deter uh, China in, in the Indo-Pacific, uh, primarily with respect to Taiwan, but even vis-a-vis -vis other partners uh, in that part of the world. And I think the second reason is a material reason. If we can neutralize Russia as a threat to Europe, it gives the United States much greater freedom with respect to doubling down on the investments it needs to make in the Indo-Pacific. Because it can, in fact, then shift resources to the Indo-Pacific quite confident that it's not going to face a threat in Europe simultaneously. And so I think there is a material reason uh, to sort of seek the diminution of Russian power in order to make uh, the shift to the Indo-Pacific, which has now been some 20 years in the making, uh, an effective shift. And so whether one looks at the demonstrative elements or whether one looks at uh, the more material calculations, they both end up uh, with the requirement uh, that the US do what is necessary to aid the Ukrainians in winning this conflict expeditiously. And I think the key word is expeditiously, because neither a long stalemate nor a uh, Ukrainian defeat on the battlefield 
really serves American interests. Our interests are best served by rolling back this invasion as quickly as possible and then using that rollback to jumpstart a negotiating process whereby both sides can find ways of living with the status quo. Let me ask you a general question from your scholarship and experience in foreign policy. Is it possible for the United States to play such a dominant role in these conflicts? Or do we also need to be thinking about how to make the United Nations or another institution that's international begin to play part of that role? So I, I, I am greatly supportive of international organizations and I don't want to give the impression that they don't matter in the evolving political universe. But the one thing we've learned, you know, over the long arc of history, at least in the modern period, is that international institutions by themselves really cannot do much if they are not supported by the power of the states that constitute them. And certainly if they are not supported by the power of the most important states in the international system. We saw this so clearly with the League of Nations, where, you know, the League of Nations was a great idea, except that it ended up not being supported by the United States, and that really ended up being a death sentence uh, for the League of Nations. The same is true of the United Nations, or for that matter, any international organization. If it lacks the support of the most powerful players in the international system, the organization essentially ends up being feckless. And so to my mind, seeking to use international organizations is not competitive with the amassing and the exercise of American power. I see them as virtuously reinforcing that the stronger the United States can remain, the stronger the United States can be, the greater the influence it can exert through international organizations. And so I see uh, the need for renewing American power as really being uh, the, critical, uh, the critical job ahead of us. Uh, it's the single most important tool that will enable us to balance the Chinese, to preserve a global order that serves our interests, to defend our friends, uh, whatever objective you can envisage, uh, I cannot think of any objectives that would not be better served by a stronger United States. And so I see the need to build and support international institutions not as a substitute for American power, but rather an extension of it. Let's talk for a minute about Prime Minister Modi and your fine essay that we'll link to in the show notes that's in chapter one of your new book, Grasping Greatness. You talk about him as being central to what you label the comprehensive transformation of India. He is often a, matter, a man of great interest to many, many people and a bit of controversy. He's often mentioned in the context of some illiberal elements such as recent controversies involving a BBC documentary. He's sometimes linked to nationalism, which is not always referred to in a positive way. Uh, 
how do we best understand him and his relationship to his country, to our country, and his historical place? Uh, James, I think he is all of the above. He is, without doubt, a transformative figure in Indian politics. Uh, we have not seen a politician of such charisma in a very long time. Uh, the last politician who I think was comparable in stature and in the way uh, public opinion could be mobilized uh, was Indira Gandhi, uh, who was India's prime minister, you know, from the late 60s until the early 80s with with a couple of breaks uh, yes. in between. Uh, Modi is in that tradition. He's in the tradition of Nehru and Indira Gandhi, who are larger than life figures. And he will transform India in through the economic policies that he's pursuing, which is to build up a very potent Indian private sector, to invest in infrastructure, in a way that the Chinese did 30 years ago. The Indian state has now begun to do that uh, with an energy uh, that unfortunately was missing in the first 50 odd years of India's independent life. And he has begun to attack mass poverty through the creation of a very large and elaborate welfare state. In fact, interestingly, long before India has actually become rich enough uh, to sustain such a welfare state. So in any, in any event, uh, he is attempting to transform India from the ground up. But he comes with uh, a variety of what some would consider baggage. He is a uh, strident Indian nationalist. Uh, he has been supportive of these illiberal tendencies that one increasingly sees in India. And he has been accused sometimes of being an authoritarian personality who thrives in an otherwise democratic space. And so I think what you will get is a different India and a much more complicated India uh, as a result of his presence uh, at the helm of affairs. You are going to get an India that is more capable and more powerful, but it is also going to be an India that will be more illiberal. It will be an India that is more self-consciously Hindu than it has ever been. And it, it will be an India where secularism will be under tremendous domestic pressure. So there are liabilities that are going to come as a result of Modi's term in office. And so it is going to create some complicated dilemmas for the United States. I often make the point that during the Cold War period, when India was non-aligned, as you pointed out earlier, the United States and India were divided on many counts by divergent interests. India supported uh, the Soviet Union in some ways. India sought to keep a substantial difference from the United States. India opposed many US policies, uh, both in Asia and around the world. 
So there were very marked differences of interest, but there was a very clear commonality of values because both countries were liberal democracies. Both countries valued uh, a deep tradition of respect for individual rights and so on and so forth. We are now evolving uh, to, to a stage where we're going to see you know, some very interesting reversals of these historic roles. Indian interests and American interests today and for the foreseeable future will be closer than they've ever been. And that closeness will be driven by a common fear of China and a common desire to balance China and Asia. But where it comes to values, I actually see an increasingly large gap between the United States and India. Of course, both countries will remain robust liberal democracies. Uh, so India will affirm the principle of democratic accountability. It will be subject to regular elections and politicians who lose elections in India will leave office, you know, as readily as they assume office when they win. So when it comes to the purely electoral dimensions of democracy, I think India and the United States will still be, be unified in that count. But when it comes to the liberal dimensions of democracy, when one thinks about the freedom uh, that societal agents have in the face of state power, when one thinks about the institutional limitations on executive authority, when one thinks about the presence or the weaknesses of civic nationalism, on all these counts, I think India will probably move further away uh, from where the United States is. And so we could end up, as I, as I pointed out, with India as a dilemma, where on one hand, we have uh, strong uh, convergences on interests, uh, but we have increasing dissonance uh, where it comes to values. And it's something that we will simply have to manage. It's going to be part of the more complicated architecture of the world that we will be immersed in. Can you think of any historical models for this relationship that you're foreseeing for the US and India? Well, we've seen this in some ways, uh, for example, in our relations with Turkey, where we are bound uh, by common interests. Uh, Turkey is a member of the NATO alliance. Uh, Turkey has, uh, for a long time, has had common interests with the United States in the stability of Europe. But as we see Erdogan's increasing Islamicization of Turkish politics and the squeezing of uh, liberal forces in Turkey and their replacement uh, by more Islamic uh, modes of, uh, of politics, of speech, uh, the growing restrictions. Uh, India seems to be some sort of an analog. Uh, that's the reason why our current relations with Turkey are, you know, so challenging to manage. And I expect that will increasingly be the, uh, it will increasingly be the case in our relations with India as well. For the moment, uh, the most acute challenges uh, in the US-India relationship uh, have been suppressed. 
Um, and those acute challenges have been suppressed because there is a common objective of uh, defeating Chinese assertiveness in Asia. And also because I think Prime Minister Modi has been very careful uh, not to unleash uh, the forces of Hindu majoritarianism in India uh, in violent form. If that majoritarianism was to manifest itself through, you know, episodes of bouts of conspicuous social violence, which is abetted by the state, then I think uh, the U.S.-India relationship would find itself under profound stress. And, you know, we all have to hope that that doesn't happen. But it's a challenge that one simply cannot pretend does not exist. Ashley, tell us, let's do a thought experiment. Let's say that a new president came in and asked you to be secretary of state and said, you were a key player in the decisions of the United States that led to a much closer strategic relationship with India that you recited from the Bush administration that was continued subsequently by presidents of both political parties. Is there a comparable action the United States could undertake today to move toward the next level in this relationship with India? I think there are two actions uh, that have to be taken in order to take the relationship to another level. One at the Indian end and one at the US end. At the Indian end, I think the Indian economy has to become much more liberal in order to give American capital, American technology, and American firms a greater role to play in India's economic growth and India's economic renewal. Uh, for all of India's economic achievements, uh, it has not been as welcoming of uh, foreign business as it should be. And I don't think you can sustain the transformation of the bilateral relationship on strategic grounds alone. And so the one thing that India has to do, besides, of course, all the things that I mentioned earlier, which is protecting its liberal politics to the degree that it can, the one thing that India has to do is to open its economy and be more welcoming uh, of, of American business create opportunities for American business so that we get to the point where American companies have a stake in India's economic success. That is still the missing piece of the, you know, of the puzzle at the Indian end. At the US end, the big challenge we are going to face is with respect to uh, the accessibility to US technology. Uh, the Indians, want U.S. technology, especially U.S. high technology, more than they want anything else from the United States. And yet, our high technology is the subject of numerous, multiple overlapping control regimes, which were developed during the Cold War and still persist. And, they, and those regimes persist for very good reason, because, you know, we do want to exercise control over the diffusion of American technologies, especially technologies that are lethal technologies uh, that have military applications. 
So, but we can afford to be uh, more liberal with giving India access to those technologies. And we should consider the kinds of reforms that may be necessary uh, to give India that access as the bilateral relationship develops in intensity. But much is going to much is going to depend on how that relationship develops to the degree that the United States gets to be more and more comfortable with India as a strategic partner. I would envisage a greater liberality uh, in Washington with respect to giving India access to US technologies. If for whatever reason, the comfort level in the US-India relationship diminishes, either because of weak economic foundations or because of even greater estrangement on the issues pertaining to values, then I think the US incentives to be more liberal uh, with the release of its technologies will also diminish. And that uh, in some sense will serve as a significant constraint on where this relationship can go in the future. How do you recommend that listeners follow news relating to India and to India-US relations? There's so much information out there, but it helps to have an expert such as yourself point us in the right direction. Well, the best way to do that, I mean, the, the good news there is that the elite American media uh, now pays more attention to India than it ever did uh, in, in recent times. Uh, when I came to the United States in 1985, you could count uh, the newspaper articles that covered developments in India or developments pertaining to India uh, literally on you know the fingers of a hand. Um, India was just not that important or just not that interesting. Today, all the major uh, American newspapers uh, and broadcast outlets either have representatives in India or have offices in India or cover India uh, far more extensively than it has ever, than they have ever done in the past. So I think, you know, the, the elite American media is not a bad place to start, but other places uh, are really uh, Indian newspapers. I mean, it's, it's interesting that India is still one of the few countries in the world that has a very vibrant press. And uh, the newspaper business is well and alive. I mean, newspapers thrive, they make a lot of money, they're very competitive. So it's very easy to, uh, you know, to find uh, voices uh, across the political spectrum in India represented in, in all its newspapers. And all these newspapers are uh, available on the web all of them have, you know, uh, websites that are fairly accessible. Some are hidden behind paywalls, but but not all of them are. And it's easy to simply just get news by trolling through the websites of, you know, three or four major Indian newspapers, uh, either daily or weekly. So there's no dearth of information uh, that is accessible uh, with respect to India or the broader Indian subcontinent anymore. Well, Ashley Tellis, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your wisdom and the benefits of your experience and service. I appreciate it, James. It was a pleasure. 
And thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us. Please send me ideas for future guests and topics and follow us on Twitter at James Strzok and connect via our website, Serve to Lead or Subscribe at Substack. Until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.